But somehow I made it to pro without being able to hop, which I'm oddly, I'm very proud of that. Because I honestly feel like I can go back to and ride a national. I rode with some of the guys that ride pro this year, earlier this year, and, I've, and we were riding all the same stuff. And I'm like, I just remember all the kids coming up to the range just kept hopping on the rear tire and putting their feet down everywhere. And I was like, I'm doing, I'm using half the amount of energy as you guys. Like if you just didn't try to be Tony Bowe, you can probably be a better trials rider. Hello and welcome to episode 94 of the Trials Australia podcast. I'm your host, David Grice. If this is your first time here, welcome. The Trials Australia podcast is a global initiative and we regularly speak to current and former champion riders, local club riders, administrators, event organisers from all around the world. Anyone really who has either a current or former involvement in the sport of trials. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love you to share it with your friends. You can subscribe through your favorite podcasting app and all episodes will be automatically delivered to your device. Also, we welcome you to come join our Facebook group. Search Facebook for Trials Australia Podcast Community and come and join the discussion. This episode is sponsored by Gas Gas. Gas Gas are excited to announce that the 2022 models are now available. The latest generation of the TXT racing bikes are available in 125, 250 and 300cc capacities. Gas Gas have continued to refine these bikes and the new models are no exceptions. The bikes will come with Olin's rear shock, tech forks, brake tech brakes, kind carburetor, one-piece aluminium swing arm, Michelin tyres and of course that renowned class-leading Gas Gas clutch. We are a global podcast so please inquire through your local dealers. However, here in Australia, the Gas Gas Trials dealers are the Hell Team, Revolution Trials, PTR Trials, Moto Dynamics, and Rock Hopping SA. This episode is also sponsored by the Hell Team. The Hell Team can supply and service Olin's and Riger rear shocks for trials bikes. Riger is a name that many may not be familiar with outside of trials, but it's a company that has a rich heritage in extreme motorsports. It started back in 1989 with its roots going even further back to 77 when Riger first came to prominence as the Suspension of choice in the Ford World Rally Championship cars of Juha Kankinen and Carlos Sainz. As well as Trials World Championships, Riger's also equipped vehicles including the Paris-Dakar, Rally Raids and World Rally Championship events across the globe. In 2011, the first Riger Trials dampers were available on a Raga replica gas gas model. And since that time, the company's gone on to produce the best rear shock absorber for all the different Trials brands. They are now standard fitment on the premium models from Gas Gas, TRS, Sherco, Scorpa, and Vertigo. In conjunction with Gas Gas and Adam Raga, Raga developed a six-way adjustable damper for the expert trial rider. So apart from having a preload rebound and high-low speed compression adjusters, it also has a hydrostop, a variable adjustment that stops the shock bottoming out on big impacts, and a variable bottom rebound adjustment that is a must-have for expert riders. This holds the damper in its compressed state, making the ability to drive vertically up objects far easier and controlled after a big splat. The Hell Team are Riga specialists and they work very closely with a Riga factory in the Netherlands to service, repair and supply Riga dampers to all trials riders. The Hell Team can service your Riga damper and they use the best Italian Andriani service machinery and genuine Riga tools and parts and can also offer a fast turnaround of jobs. Also great to speak to them about getting custom units specifically designed for riders' weights and ability. Check them all out at The Hell Team, www.thehellteam.com. 
The podcast has been on a theme of late and we've been talking to writers who have transitioned from trials to hard enduro. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke to Graham Jarvis and today is a continuation of that theme as we chat with trials champion and the USA's leading hard enduro writer, Cody Webb. Cody is unbelievably easy to talk to, which makes this interview really special. We were able to get below the surface and find out what makes him tick. Cody's accomplishments in trials culminated in 2010 as he won the NATC Pro Class Championship after a number of years of second place. He's also won gold at the Trials des Nations, the international competition for trials riders, and also at the ISDE Enduro, which puts him in quite rare company. This chat goes on to discuss the reflections on the difficulties of making a hard enduro event that's suitable for both pro and amateur riders, dealing with injuries throughout his career, his thoughts on the next generation of hard enduro riders in the USA, and how he's trying to build parity between the USA and Europe from a hard enduro perspective. Just a heads up that at about 45 minutes into this chat, there is some background noise that I did my best to suppress, but some of it still managed to trickle through to the final edit. That said, it's still a quality conversation, and ladies and gentlemen, I give you my chat with the USA's leading hard enduro writer, Cody Webb. Cody Webb, welcome to the Trials Australia podcast. Yeah, pretty excited to be here. I know we're uh, completely different time zones right now, but uh, <laughs> modern technology, somehow we make this work. I know, it's unreal. Oh, it's unreal. I'm speaking to people all around the globe. I'm your West Coast, am I correct? Like mountain time. I'm ah. almost right in the middle now, but West, they call it the West Coast, but I'm about in the middle, to be honest. Right. Okay. Oh, cool. So you're a man who's had a bit of time in trials and now moved on to hard enduro. And I've spoken to a few people in that sort of field more recently, and I'm really keen to keep these types of conversations going because it's good to get someone that's got a bit of perspective, I think, about both sides of the sports and offer a bit of insight. But I'd like to to start, if that's okay, with just a question you put on social media a while ago. And that was, is there going to get to a point where we all end, we end up riding trials on our enduro bikes or it's all just becoming amalgamated and it's going to be hard to distinguish between the two sports <laughs> given some of the sort of techniques you're employing on your sort of enduro bike. I, I wonder, did you get a conclusion to that question you were pondering? I still don't think I have a conclusion at this point. What I do think though is that uh, maybe at the pro level we'll get to the trials. Like we're, we're literally almost riding trials sections on our enduro <laughs> bikes. You look at a race like Hispania or something like that where it just looks yep. ridiculous. but. I think in the grand scheme of things with a whole group of people racing and the amateurs, it, it just turns into too much of a bottleneck. Like Erzberg is a really cool race for the pros, but if you're row six, you have no chance of you just waiting in lines almost right. all race. You know what I mean? So maybe for the pro class, I think that's what's really cool about a race like Romaniacs is they have the gold line and it's basically a rally transfer section for an hour. And all of a sudden you get into just basically a, a trials climb up a hill for 30 minutes. So I don't think it'll ever get fully to that level, but it definitely seems like it when uh, the riders are training. What we're doing now is quite a bit more difficult than just uh, six, seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine it's, I'll, I'll get to the sort of track configuration and whether organizers have got the balance right. Cause uh, yeah, bottlenecks is a thing you definitely need to manage. Just as it's protocol though, because we are a trials podcast, can we just go back and find out where your trials origin story began? So how did it all start for you and where did your trials journey begin? Yeah, my 
trials journey started before I was even born. My dad competed in trials and I think he got, he grew up, uh, he was originally born in Canada and then moved to uh, the States when he was really young. And uh, I guess their neighbors had a TY250 or something like that. Mm-hmm. They grew up going to little motorcycle events. I think my dad had like a Kawasaki 90 or something funky like that. I don't even know what it was. It wasn't even a trials bike, but <laughs> basically rode trials on that. And then eventually at some point, I think he got a Boltaco or something like that. Mm-hmm. My dad competed in the nationals. He, he actually rode against Bernie Schreiber. I'm pretty sure Bernie beat him every time. But when my dad was getting into it, it was a little bit near the end of it for Bernie. So I don't mm-hmm. think my dad rode with him too much. There's some other trials guys. I think Marlon Whaley was a really good trials rider back then as well. So my dad rode trial of nations four times for the US. I think he got fourth in the nation four times as well. Growing up, I would go to these events in our little motorhome and I was on a wooden trike or something like that and face planting off rocks. So at a young age, I was just thrown right into it. And I still talk to guys like Jeff Aaron today. And he <laughs>, laughs because he saw me. Jeff competed in the nationals against my dad and me. So Jeff was at it for quite a long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Jeff remembered me when I was two, like two, three years old, falling on my face and, and crashing yeah. on this little trike. Every weekend you're going to these events, naturally, you're going to fall into that. You know, yeah. You can't bracket. help but immerse yourself. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's It was all I knew. And I went to school and I'd come home from school and I had to do my homework before I can go ride my bicycle. I had like an old trials bicycle that was my dad. I'd go ride and just didn't start right away on a trials bike because there really wasn't an option. Yeah. Like there okay. is now. Like now like you have an Osset. Or, yeah. So my first real trials bike was a Mecha Techno, the Amigo 80. Okay. So, all right. I think I got that when I was about seven and just kind of kept going from there. And did you find that it was instant? Trials is one of these sports that can take a bit of time to conquer and or you might have had other interests. Oh, motocross is fast and exciting. Maybe I want to do that. But given you're around a trials family and you're at these events any weekend, I suppose it was the path of least resistance. But was it an instant love affair for you or did it take a bit of time to you find it for yourself? Honestly, I think it came really quick and probably because I was so young, you're just like a sponge at that age. Yeah. And my dad was still competing, but maybe on the tail end of his career. When I was 10 years old, I started riding the US National Trial Series and it would, my dad was riding, I think, expert at the time. So he would start about an hour ahead of me and he would just rip through the first lap and hopefully catch up to me. Right. And I would get ready to start and then he would ride with me. So, that's it was cool. just what my dad and I did, <clears throat> excuse me, every weekend. We'd go to the same place every Saturday, Sunday, ride from about seven till noon. And my dad wasn't practicing for himself. He was going and cutting stuff for me. And he was my number one minder. He was always known for being able to catch the bike in like any scenario. And he has like monster hands. Everyone calls, <laughs> him, everyone calls him diesel mitts. My dad was just, he yep. was just there for yeah. For me, it wasn't for him. Was it one of those relationships <laughs> where you looked up to your dad and thought, oh, wow, that's awesome? Or were there other people that were on the periphery of you going, oh, I'd like to ride like that person one day? Who was your inspiration? Really, it was obviously my dad. I didn't even really know who Jeff Aaron was at the time because things that we, there was no no platforms like there are today for all these people to watch and YouTube and stuff like that. I grew up watching two VHS tapes every week. It was the 1990 World Trials Championships. So there was one in uh, Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, yep. at a place called Ioka. And then the other one was in Arizona. 
So I'd watch these same World Trials Championship tapes every week. And Amos Bilbao, Donato <laughs> Melio, obviously, uh, what's his face? Jordy. Yeah, so exactly. I grew up looking up to older generation of riders because yeah. that's all I knew and I would see. And I remember a long time ago, we used to have a, an event called El Trial de España. We still do here in the States, but it started as a fundraiser. Yes. For Trial Nation stuff. And it's like a, like more of a show. It's like an actual event, but like they always put on exhibition with extra hard sections for the pros. Yeah. And Adam Raga came, David Kobos came back in the day. So I remember going to the World Trials Championships at Donner Ski Ranch in 1997. I think I was in second grade and like David Kobos was my hero. So <laughs> I definitely looked up some of those guys and it was actually really cool. David Kobos is living in uh, Mexico now and he came up to, one of the hardened rows this year in Texas. Yeah. And this guy came up to me and I'm like, dude, you're, no you're David Cobb was like, you're my hero. When I was a little <laughs> kid. It's pretty crazy. And I think he was kind of like honored to hear that because yeah. he kind of got really good. And he, unfortunately his career ended pretty early. So yeah. Yeah, I grew up kind of those guys and it was funny. Jeff, obviously I eventually met Jeff Aaron and he was my mentor and I was one of his young yeah. riders on his team. He had. Um, so in yeah, the early you 2000s. rode for Jeff's. Yep. Team ERE Gas Gas. Is that yep. correct? Yeah, I did for four, three or four years, I think. Okay. Oh, so wow. right in the very beginning. And the my very first year in pro, I think it was 2004. And that was, I was on his ERE team that year. Was there some sort of story I was reading that they tried to get you in a high school class, but the age restrictions were too prohibitive? And yeah. so you ended up riding amongst adults. What's that about? They had the high school class, which was for kids and juveniles but it was i think the age was 12 to 16 or 12 to 18 right and i was only 10 so there wasn't an option like a class for me to ride in the nationals and no one that young had ridden before so the ama was like oh you're not 12 you can't ride in the high school class and my dad like basically said i couldn't ride the nationals and my dad's i'm gonna put him in support class then because support was just the all-around generic class and i think they ended up changing the rules so i actually rode high school yeah Okay. And there's a couple other things I did illegally back in the day that probably, hopefully I don't get uh, enough time was taken passed. away. <laughs> but when I rode the FIM World Trials Championship, my very first world round I ever rode, I fudged the date on my birthday by one week so I can ride the, <laughs> the world round in Duluth, Minnesota. Yeah. Because so, there was no driver's license. They really didn't need any proof of my age because yep. you didn't need to ride on the road. I didn't even have my license, actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. Yeah, oh. I fudged that my date on that. And then I think I rode another world world round later that year in Spain. But yep. I had to, I actually got my motorcycle license in the States before I got my driver's license because I couldn't get my driver's license in time. And since in Europe, you ride on the road, you need a license, an actual yep. driver's license. I had to get that to even compete in time. <laughs> yep. And then went right before I turned 18, it was like a week before I turned 18, they had the, the world championship at the trials training center in Tennessee. All right. And and I didn't want, I, 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 they had the blue line mixed in with the, the pro class. Like yep. it, they had the national together with the world round. So I didn't want to get, be stuck riding a 125. And I didn't want to, I wanted to score points for the world round event. I fudged my date again. And then they caught us that time. We're like, oh, don't let it happen again. And I could, they just let it slide that I could ride my normal size bike without having to be on a 125 when I was 18. But I got caught the second time because of what happened the first time, which was pretty funny. <laughs> so let's just talk about your, your accomplishments. You were NATC 
expert trials champion in 2003. You were pro trials champion in 2010. You've ridden the trials des nations for your country when um, you actually won it in your class in 2005. You're riding world rounds. So you obviously achieved a reasonable level. Take me through some of those more. What amongst that is some of your fondest memories and your biggest senses of achievement? Yeah, for sure. Winning, I won the high school championship in 2002 as well. So two years after I started riding the nationals. In the beginning, I was 10 years old and I was like, my whole goal is to beat like one person at the national. Right. Two years later, I won the high school national championship before I was even in high school. So that was pretty cool. (laughs) <laughs> and then the next year I moved up to expert and had a couple really good events then won that championship early actually and then rode pro at the last two events yep that year or last two or three events that year I forget exactly but I think the thing I was most proud of about going to pro even though I guess I shouldn't be proud of it but I was such like an old school trials guy from what my dad taught me and watching all like the old VHS tapes was yep I got to the pro class and I could really I, I really couldn't even hop hardly at all I was so you were just only, like floater turns everywhere yeah i was like the king of momentum and floaters and just yep. it's like super old school because i still remember one section one of the nationals when i i rode pro one weekend in wyoming and then the next weekend i rode pro again and they had these big pipes separated and i could not do a nose wheelie to kick my rear end over to the other pipe. <laughs> i think i fived it every lap but somehow I, I made it to pro without being able to hop which i'm oddly i'm very proud of that because all the kids now like I honestly feel like I can go back to and ride a national. I haven't really been riding too many nationals at all, but I rode with some of the guys that ride pro this year, earlier yeah. this year, and I've, I hardly practice at all anymore. And we were riding all the same stuff. And I'm like, God, I just remember all the kids coming up to the ranks just kept hopping on the rear tire and putting their feet down everywhere. And I was like, I'm doing, I'm using half the amount of energy as you guys. Like if you just didn't try to be Tony Bow, you can probably be a better trials rider. <laughs> You're giving me hope as well thinking that I need to learn how to hop to progress through the various grades, even as a clubman rider, when in fact, I was at the training track with a a good friend and we were practicing floater turns. I'm like, oh my God, this is just going to open up a meter of space just right when I need it, if I can just anchor this skill. So yeah, you raise a good point. Yeah. So I rode pro for a while. I was was supposed to be the next best thing. And then obviously Pat Smodgy came in and uh, swept the rug out from under me. Let me ask you about that. So in 2006, you were second to Jeff Aaron, and then in 2007, eight, and nine, you were second to Pat. Uh, you finally got <clears> your <throat> win in pro in 2010, but what, what were those four years like? How did you handle that? You were getting wins throughout the season. It wasn't like you were exclusively running second, but just to not make it at that final championship level. How did you cope? What does that say about you and your personality? It was definitely a struggle there. and. Obviously, I knew I could win, but like things just, Pat was just riding better than me a little bit. And sometimes I get the best of them. And then in 2008 and 2009, I rode the Sherco four stroke, that 320. Yeah. It just rattled like crazy and hard to start. And uh, man, that after 2009, I was like, I have had enough of this bike. I cannot splatter this thing to save my life. Like it, it was just holding me back so bad. And we then, did have Brad Bormitt on the on the. Did the he admit podcast. that I was just dying on that bike? I wasn't dying on it, but it was. He he admitted it had some problems. I think let's just say there was some problems. Yes. Yeah. And I just couldn't splatter it. So then I signed a deal with Gas Gas. So I got I think it was like a used 08 Raga with a blown out shock that was Jeff Aaron's or something. Right at the end of 09, 
and I went riding and like the very first day I went riding, I was doing stuff I never even knew was possible. It, I just felt incredible. And that next year, 2010, I only had a one year deal and I'm like, okay, like I'm either going to make this happen or I'm just going to quit and finish school and become an engineer. Cause I just can't yeah. keep doing this for no money just because I love it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Eventually I need to get my career figured out and then I can do this for fun. And luckily I just put a ton of hard work in. I just trained really hard that year and focused hard. And man, I won like almost every event that season. And it was just, that was literally the turnaround for my career and just to keep me. Yeah, absolutely. And it seemed to be well-deserved and especially as you raise the points around the sort of challenges with the, the four stroke, I wonder, had you found a two-stroke earlier on, would you maybe have claimed another title? Do you feel like you've got any unfinished business in trials? Are you, are you happy with everything that you achieved? I'm too far gone now to make a comeback at Pat or anything like that. But one thing I am upset about, there was a couple years in there where I got injured, so I missed some of the seasons or I was doing hard enduros. So I, I quit competing at the end of 2015, but I did ride nationals the whole time off and yep. on up till then. When I was with Beta, I didn't really gel with that bike too much, the the trials bike. It was a little bit more of that like old school riding bike. I felt like it was really good for basics, but if you wanted to get to that next level, I just didn't really like the way the suspension felt. Yep. And we had to do a lot of stuff to it with the clutch and high compression head to get it to where I wanted it, basically to feel more like the gas gas. But I still won events every year. 2013, I miss some events with a broken foot, I came back and I won, I think, one or two events in a row. 2014 was the same. I missed the whole season. I think I rode the last two rounds and I won both days. And 2015, I rode the the Honda and it was a built bike from Spain. Ah, from right. So it wasn't a, a Tony Bow bike, but it was like the one Mark Fresha rides or like the next level down. Yep. And that bike was honestly really good. I really enjoyed it. I just couldn't splatter again. I don't know how Tony Bo splatters the four stroke, but yeah, it's amazing. Uh, he's just a freak. But I was just really bummed about 2015 because I didn't win a pro class national. I got the last round of the year. I think I lost by two points and I fived the same section every lap because I couldn't make it up this rock without a kicker. Right. So okay. I just was at a deficit and yeah. I was sad I never won an event in 2015. On more positive notes, let's talk about the things you did win. So TDN 2005, firstly, you're representing your country as well. Was that your first TDN or had you done TDNs before that? I had went, I had gone in 2004. So when I just turned 16, pretty much. So I went to Europe two times in 2004. I did a world round and then I came back later for TDN. And that was really fun. I think we rode the A-line that year. So it was a little bit more aggressive. Wow. In 2004. Okay. Yeah. And then the next year was awesome. Like I just loved that place for riding. It was in Italy. It's so cool. Like some creeks, and uh, we did really good that year. I think I was I rode really strong there, and second yep. time there, and then just I don't know. It was that was awesome. Obviously, we won, so it was cool. And then I think every year after that, except one, I was always in the A group. I think yep. I can't remember. So we are always getting spanked. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't remember what we rode. I remember going in Poland. Some of them just turned into a blur at some point. <laughs> it's been a long time now, but I think I went seven times. Yep. I think you must be in rare air because you've also gone on to win an ISDE enduro six day gold medal. So to, in terms of people in the US, there may be other countries, but in the terms of the US, you'd be amongst a rare select group of individuals that would have won gold at both. Yeah, I really 
that was my goal once I started riding enduro bikes was to at least go once. And I wasn't on the trophy team, so it's not as cool. And yeah, but I still got a gold in the the club division and got third in E3. But I that's just something I wanted to do. Like I kind of wanted to put my foot out there and trying to be as known as one of America's best all around yep. motorcycle riders in general. And going to six days and doing multiple trial nations and who knows. I could always go and ride tri- Trial Nations again if my schedule wasn't. Oh my God. Yes. We'll come to that because <laughs> yeah, 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 the mind boggles with the amount of events that are currently out there. And just as we're departing the the trials sort of time, did you reach the end of your trials time? I think I got the answer when you were saying, listen, I was probably, you were probably looking to leave trials anyway, if you couldn't win this and start your career. So what I'm trying to work out is, were you lured away from trials? by the potential to ride enduro or would you have probably completed finished riding trials anyway even if enduro didn't pull you towards that sport i think i still would have rode trials national a little bit just because i was still right at the top maybe i can beat pat here and there but not i just wasn't putting the time in because i was riding the enduro bikes a lot more but ultimately what really took me away from riding the nationals in the states was just the fact that I went to the factory KTM team and I was, they put the brakes on that because it was yep. a conflicting issue. They want you to focus. All right. Well, let's talk about that. Well, that and there was no, like KTM doesn't have a trials bike. So Still what can recently. I ride that did like Montessa was the only one, but that's a Honda. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was the issue. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. So, so KTM just that? goes and buys everyone. So then he fixes that. <laughs> Problem <laughs> solved. Yeah. Problem solved. Did, did you, so when did you put the brakes on trials 2015? But you said you were riding some enduro up to that. So when did the sort of start of the enduros mm-hmm. begin and, and when did it become a, a complete cutover? The enduro riding started... <clears throat> Enduro riding started at near the end of 2008. I bought a bike two weeks before Enduro Cross. I bought a KTM 250 two-stroke, and I rode the final Enduro Cross race of the year. I rode trials, but the trials cross class, Got and it. I rode a trials bike and that KTM. So 2008, and then I literally hardly rode my Enduro bike ever. I just ride it sometimes in the winter because it would rain and the dirt was good. It's not like I don't know. I was in California, so it's dusty. Obviously, you see all yeah. the wildfire wildfires. I just rode the trials for fun here and there, and as I kept riding trials the people i rode with started going to college and not riding anymore so i was just by myself so yep. it was i was still riding and training a lot but it got to that point where you're like against a wall and it's hard to progress and you're by yourself after school or after work training yep. and i could literally call up anyone and everyone had dirt bikes to go ride dirt bikes so i started riding my dirt bike more because of that yep okay so this and is about 2008 in terms of when i first got the bike and then i started riding the Enduro bike more and more, probably 2010, 2011. Yeah, okay. when I really started picking it up. And 2000, late 2011, 2012, that's when I just started focusing mainly on Enduro bike all the time. And I would just ride trials in, in between for cross training. So was there a point at time where you had some results that thought, oh, I could be good at this and this could be a new pathway for me? What was some of those turning points? The final Enduro Cross race of the year in 2010, I had gotten like a loner gas gas because I was on the trials bike that year. So they just gave me like some kind of beat up already 250. Right. And I was just traveling around and in the van and I'd bring my dirt bike and my trials bike and just be a motorcycle gypsy and hit (laughs) trials events and these Enduro Cross events. And the final race of the year, I finished on the podium and got third. 
Okay. And I was just a total trials guy, you know what I mean? So yeah, that was okay. Like obviously now I got that, let's keep doing this. Then I signed with beta for 2011 and they built me a pretty sweet, um, enduro cross bike. So I went with four stroke, which what well, it wasn't a bad bike. It was just really heavy. Yeah. Um, and then 2013 is really when things started blowing up for me. Beta came out with a two stroke. I started training way more than on the motor, on the enduro bike and riding motocross tracks. And then I won three of the final four enduro crosses that year. And it just yep. kind of, once that happened and I'm in the magazines in 2014, I won the championship. I was on the cover of cycle news, some big magazines and it and, was and, pretty and much all over for trials. As yeah. well in the process. Let's not ignore that fact. That, Down the King. That's right. <laughs> I was, I kind of joke. I was like the lowest paid national enduro cross champ ever because i know taddy was pulling some big numbers back then and i was probably like my <laughs> whole year was like half of his championship bonus or something like who knows what, <laughs> what exactly but. that is an awesome story you're prepared i'm preparing for this and i can tell from our conversation so far you were a fa- fairly relaxed calm kind of guy i asked this question recently to graham jarvis who episodes coming out shortly and he said to me i, well, I was like, the question was when you approach a trials event, I've heard from guests that you really need to keep your emotions in check. You need to stay calm. But enduro is one of these things where potentially you've got to motivate yourself. You've got a lot of variables. You've got a lot of factors that are happening throughout the event. It's easy to lose your temper and get cross. So you finding that the way you approach and motivate yourself for an event, mid-event, is changed when you move to enduro? And you know, are you a more shouty person when the helmet goes on? <laughs> I'm not too much more shouty. I'm still pretty, pretty reserved for the most part and analytical yeah. from like the trial side of things. But there's times where you yell at someone and panic, but everyone says that I need to probably be more aggressive when I pass them and stuff like that. So right. it just depends. I'm still calm. And I, you can definitely see that Jarvis is still pretty calm. He never looks flustered ever. Yeah. And that's why he saves so much energy. And he's, I don't know, he's an anomaly. I don't know how he does it, but <laughs> he just doesn't panic. Yeah, yeah. When you've got a body of work, you get a degree of confidence that you could probably deal with most things when you've had that level of experience. Are you- we briefly interrupt this conversation to remind you that this episode is sponsored by Gas Gas. The new 2022 bikes have arrived. The latest generation of the TXT racing bikes are available in 125, 250 and 300cc capacities. While stocks last, there are $1,500 factory rebates available on all remaining 2021 stock. This even includes the GP models, making these bikes sensational value. Please contact your local gas gas dealer. Now back to our conversation. When you started in your heart, what were the events that you were lured to? Obviously being a trials guy, hard enduro is a natural candidate, but I've also spoken to David Knight who did things like the World Enduro Championships and then the GNCC. Did you, were you ever pulled to more traditional enduro series or were you more targeting just the hard enduro events and how did you balance it all? Yeah, I was definitely tied to hard enduro for a way. And obviously first off was enduro cross because I was in all the magazines and stuff when I was coming up to the ranks at that age. And then Erzberg was always just, that was the one it was yep. on like, mainstream tv in america with travis pastrana those were the two big events i wanted to do and i was a trials guy Taddy was a trials guy i can obviously do this gncc really wasn't a thing for me i definitely was more lured lured to like national enduro our national enduro in the states is a lot different than world enduro championships 
Right. Um, it's more like, it's just a lot tighter into the trees and more, they're faster than what they used to be. They're pretty technical and rough, to be mm-hmm. honest, and more single track type riding. So yep. that's what I prefer. I've done three GNCCs now and I've pretty much got my butt kicked every time, but I just, my hands go numb when I'm flat out pinned for (laughs) (laughs) this is like terrible arm pump and I'm just like scared. It's just too much for me. I'd rather, I'm way more comfortable whizzing through trees. Yeah. You're not the first person to say that. And I imagine you would excel as the environment gets more technical anyway. So that's the sort of stuff. Yeah. You'd be better off placed at, I would have thought. Yeah. So Let's talk about some of your achievements. You got second in in Erzberg. How close were you? And obviously still trying for the win. Yeah, obviously still trying for the win. I've had a lot of bad years in a row now. (laughs) I broke my foot, blew my knee out a week before, COVID two years back to back, messing it up. So it's been a while, but the year I got second, I was way back. Graham smoked me. But the, and I had, I I couldn't believe it. I just, I just kept. (laughs) moving along and somehow I did well. And then the year I got third, I was leading back and forth with Johnny for a bit. And man, I got, I think I was just riding too tight. And I got, I couldn't even ride through Carl's diner or pull my front brake. And I had terrible arm pump. So I went from leading all the way back to like seventh or eighth. And I just stopped after the first time at Carl's diner and just waited and talked to my mechanic. I was like, I cannot ride. Like I didn't just making a fool of myself. <laughs> and I went out and I literally went from like seventh or eighth to third. And I only finished a couple of minutes back behind Graham at the end of the race. Like I was still fresh. So that was definitely my year, I feel. And I had problems. I was obviously really looking forward to it the next year and didn't pan out. Got hurt in the prologue. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So your knee injuries and such are problems. <clears throat> what was the injury that year? You- I just... I tumbled and cartwheeled in the prologue like right off the bat i just hit something hard and slammed my foot down and i broke my foot a bone in my foot and tore the mcl in my knee okay and i broke one of my ring fingers i don't remember which finger it was so then i got up amazed i was okay and rode all the way up to the brit i finished the prologue and as i was going up the hill i kept noticing more things that were hurting i was like oh my foot <laughs> oh my knee hurts oh my finger <laughs> like so i got and then i had I got to the top and I was like, you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. And I just rode straight down the mountain and yep. went to the pits. And I was like, something's wrong, like all on this side of my body. I don't know what it is. So <laughs> I spent four hours in the booth doing like Red Bull commentary, which was okay. the next best thing. Building up the uh, post-racing career. Yeah. CV. Uh, what was the time off the bike like in your injuries? Are you one of these people that is climbing the walls when you haven't been on a bike for you know weeks and months or are you actually able to refocus and use maybe some of those engineering skills and (laughs) find other projects to keep yourself occupied right now i've definitely been busy since i broke my wrist but i think first time i got injured i was still i was doing pt every day and that was back in 2013 i broke a different bone in my foot and came back from that and i think i podiumed the x games enduro cross seven or eight weeks after i broke my foot so yeah, right. i was definitely trying to stay fit but it definitely hurt i had a plate so it wasn't gonna yeah, trusted okay. it and then when i blew my knee out that was really tough terrible my knee still isn't good and i'm still working on it and doing stuff i was just doing workouts today to get that back yeah that one was pretty gnarly yeah i don't like that one no, let's not talk about it then it was just so hard to do anything you can't do anything like 
going to the store is hard. This time when I broke my wrist, I broke my wrist when I was a little kid and I was in a cast. It doesn't even affect me at all. And I had that nasty spill the day after the Tennessee knockout and just went to catch myself, stick my hand back, bite crushed me. And I hyperextended my wrist so bad, the ligament pulled a piece of bone off. Yeah, ouch. So it took us or it took the doctors a while to find the break. I, I didn't want to be like a wimp, but I was like, Dude, I swear something is broken. And they're like, oh, we're the splint. We can't find anything. It must be sprained. And I didn't tell the doctors, but I went, I tried to go mountain biking. And <laughs> the very first drop off, I knew it was broken. I was like, it's, but I was like, wrong. I'm already here. So we still rode for like about two hours. And I was just like hovering my hand on braking bumps <laughs> and stuff. It was three and a half weeks before I got in a cast and I just spent four weeks in a cast. Uh, Doctor said two weeks in a splint. The splint lasted about two hours. Okay. They said I could ride when I get to 75% my range of motion. I still haven't even got to PT and I'm already like. Yeah. Okay. I'm, yeah. I just haven't ridden yet because it still hurts. Okay. Common sense is prevailing. That's but I'm a, I, I, I moved recently and we got our kids. So this, the project, as soon as I got the cast off, we, I, put tile up in our kitchen and i just put the grout in today so i'm staying busy <laughs> which was a pain i had a buddy help with the the tile at least but i'm definitely not that's not a good career for me i made a huge mess with the grout but i got it done yeah no uh, <laughs> absolutely everyone's got their skills so don't uh, don't feel bad your your calendar we touched on it earlier how do you plan your year and what events and series are you committed to at the moment yeah, now that I'm riding on the Factory One Sherco team here in the States, I'm pretty much trying to stay here and promote the bike as well as I can in the States to help that. And I think it's been really well so far. Obviously, Europe has Mario and Wade, and I'm not really like a European factory guy and American guy. But the team obviously supports me going to Europe and hitting the big high-profile events because me being there is a people like yeah. it when they see someone from their home country out there competing. That's yeah. Yeah. Pride. Oh, you're a worthy contender. You're at yeah. the end of the field. So yeah. So we're, I'm not going to do the full hard enduro schedule. I don't think next year, just because we're trying to grow the American series and it's just a ton of traveling. And when I was 26, 27, it wasn't any, you know, a problem at all. And now that I'm 33 and managing life and a kid and this and that like things yeah. have changed <laughs> adulting it sucks yeah, yeah adulting is rough <laughs> yeah the struggle is real so did you find with your contract with sherco you've got a trials bike in that and do you still have one in the garage yeah yeah we got in the garage right now uh, i was actually riding them quite a bit when i first moved because a couple of trials kids here some of them that ride the nationals were they were actually just at the tdn a couple of weeks ago but Yep. They wrote, they were here for a bit. So I rode with them for a day. And a lot of the enduro guys that are here have trials bikes, but they never ride and ride them. And now that I moved to this area, the enduro guys want to try and learn something for the hard enduro stuff. So I rode quite a bit this spring and early summer. And then we started doing all the hard enduro races. And I was barely, I was gone like every weekend. I think I was home two weekends from the end of May till August. Really? After TKO. Yeah, I was home for like really? that whole time. So I wasn't even practicing anymore. Like I just, I would go to the race, yep. come home, go to the next one. And with those hardened drills, it's like a four hour race. Like you just don't go out riding the next day after a, a four hour kill yourself hardened drill. You're absolutely you a little bit to recover. And then you got to leave Thursday for a race that's on Sunday. So you get there, leave Thursday, get there Friday, and then you walk the course yeah 
a Friday. Uh, you do a prologue Saturday, do more walking. So if you're just there's you're no time to even train when the schedule's that wild. Yeah, no, agreed. agreed. And so what's the first event that goes in your calendar every year? Depends on if it's super, if I do super enduro or not. Um, it didn't go last year, obviously COVID happened. I don't know if we're going this year or not, but normally it's King of Motos, I think okay. in America, but not sure if they're having it next year. There's been some pretty big years there, here and there. Jarvis came a couple of times, Manny Lettenbeekler came. So King of Motos is the first one and then it's a little bit of a break again, but What's been your experience in coming from trials to hard enduro? We often hear complaints in trials around, oh, the sections are too easy or the sections are too hard. All that really changes, I suppose, is the score. People can still complete their trial. Whereas if you get that wrong in enduro and you make a section too hard, you get bottlenecks, people don't finish events. It's, there's all sorts of issues. So what's been your observations, trials to enduro? And how are organizers going at the moment in your experience being a US-based guy about getting the technicality and hardness for hard enduro correct? Yeah, it's definitely hard to find that balance. Riding trials, I always hated the easy easy events because it's just you're super stressful every time you put your foot down and you're yep. like, oh, I just lost the trial. So I prefer the harder events and separates the, the boys from the men. Yep. And that's definitely the case with hard enduro as well. The faster races, some of the guys who normally maybe wouldn't be at the top have that opportunity to be at the top. This year at the Romaniacs, I really didn't expect it to be so fast, like a rally. And day two was really hard. And that was my best day where I got eighth, but I also started. I had issues the first day. So I lost about an hour time wise yeah. trying to mess with stuff, which sucked. So I started like way back with 18th with the slower guys and I had to catch my way up to the fast guys. So. I feel like Romaniacs Day 2, I rode really well considering where I started at. And then it was just so fast the next two days. Like I just right. didn't yeah. want to go that fast. But then in the States, it's definitely a little bit different because everyone basically rides the same course. Same thing with Erzberg. Everyone rides the same course. So Right. So there's no gold, silver, bronze kind of No lines. gold, silver, bronze. And right. I think that is what's great about Romaniacs. That's the coolest thing about it because... Everyone can go and enjoy themselves without just either killing themselves or waiting in a line. But I think there's too many classes. <laughs> right. Okay. This is so much work for the promoters to do that. So yeah, okay. I think what we're doing now in the states, a lot of times we've, I've highly suggested having the two, like basically the same overall course, and then have some five A only lines where it's just ridiculous and pushes the pros to go to the next level. Because some of our races, it's we're not even getting pushed; we're just sprinting for two hours. And yeah, okay. And then a lot of our races in the states, so we have a prologue, which is like the race for the amateurs. So it's obviously a little bit more technical than a traditional hair scramble, but it's tough for those guys. And then that's what we use to qualify for our races. So I guess it gives them an opportunity to ride, but yeah. there's just so many varying levels. It's hard to make everyone happy, but. This year we had two really hard races in the states. Tough like Roar is should it that one could easily be on the world level and make those guys hurt because yep. only three fe- three people finished this year in six hours. Wow! So yep. that's that's definitely like people were like one of our one of my good buddies who's pretty decent at these events. Like maybe he's cracked top ten a couple times, but obviously a good rider and like he had to get an IV and like get carted off. <laughs> Oh, side of the track <laughs> so maybe those that those types of races goes too hard but then it also progresses us at the same time so yeah yeah absolutely i enjoyed it i won maybe that's why i enjoyed it 
that might have helped. Yeah. That might have helped. But it was very difficult yeah. race. And for once, it felt like the US was on par with Europe. Okay. Okay. Now, you made a comment at, or we were talking about at the start, these thought-provoking questions that you were having around, are we all going to end up riding hard you know trials on hard enduro bikes or on, on enduro bikes are you has there been any other thought provoking questions that you've been pondering or or has that really been it there's that but there's also a thought i have and it's very obvious that it's true but like the next generation of kids riding have they have people to look up to platforms to follow like billy and his youtube stuff like so many people watch it and yep. see what's going on and now when I go to these enduro cross races, there was a kid, the last one I was doing the commentating for since I'm not back yet, obviously. And he was on a, I don't know if it was a super mini or an 805, right? but he rode the trials. They have a trials junior class, which is for like up and coming kids. So he rode a, the electric motion in that. Okay. Won that. And I don't think he's even a trials rider. He's just like a motorcycle rider. We'll yeah. Him. Right. But he was riding that mini bike, super mini or 85, whatever it was on the enduro cross track and just absolutely killing it. And he, I was up in the announcer booth and I'm like, this guy's making, this little kid's making the track look easier. Destry Abbott back in the day and all these yeah. people trying to figure out how to ride enduro cross. This kid's just already a natural because it's a thing for him to practice. Whereas before yeah. it was David Knight was just a world enduro guy that rode trials and all of a sudden he was somehow he's really good at hard enduro. Like it's just, it's specialized now. And if you're yep. not in that sport, you will not be able to do it. You mentioned there the par- lack of parity or maybe US is on parity with Europe. Just take me through that as someone that's not immersed in in hard enduro. I'm, I'm obviously a trials guy. But what do you refer to when you say the parity between US and Europe? It's the same thing with trials in the US compared to Europe. We have Pat Smodgy. There was me. There was Jeff Aaron. There's a young kid, Josh Roper right now. But Pat is incredible. And he'll go to a world round and he'll probably finish last or close to last in the A-line. So it's pretty crazy, that gap. And for quite a few years now, it's similar in the hard and drill world where honestly, for a while, I felt like it was just me who was up there at the top that can compete with the best in in Europe. And now things are changed. I've had that target on my back long enough that the younger (laughs) kids had had the chance to catch up to me but i felt like i've been dragging them along as the sport goes on and time goes so okay but, so you know, the european guys are just in terms of riders skills more so than the event types yeah and event types as well but trials events a trials event whether yeah. it's no stop or or stopping and then with hard enduro you describe really hard stuff in yeah. a certain amount of time yeah just the riders skill levels in europe always have been better for the technical side is there a an event that would get you uh, calendar permitting back on a trials bike. You've had a lot of success at El Trial de España and things like that, or maybe it would be a national. What would it be? If you had a free weekend and you were going to get the trials bike out, what would be the event to lure Cody back? I was actually planning on riding the Arizona national they had this year. Yeah. But it was if I didn't go to Romaniacs or if COVID and all that stuff permitted me from getting to Romania. So I was going to ride Arizona, but ended up going to Romaniacs instead. So. And that would have been in the pro class. I was going to ride expert, and then I rode with Daniel, who I think he got second a couple of years ago. I rode with him, and I was like able to ride more or less the same sections. I would obviously wasn't as polished, but yeah, okay. I can't ride expert if I'm riding the same stuff. Here, yeah. So, oh, cool. I, unfortunately, I would have to ride pro. So, Cody, just as we're wrapping up this enduro part of the conversation, I'm I'm curious to 
ask you what's next and what's got you most excited about the future. You talked at the start about how your dad brought you into the sport. You mentioned you've got kids. What's the future for you and the sport and your family? And how, take me, tell me what you're excited about. Yeah, I definitely want to stay involved with this industry. And when my dad kind of quit riding, he was still riding, but all his effort was put towards me. And obviously, I'm not quitting yet. Uh, I got another year on my contract. And as of now, I definitely plan on re-upping that because there's still some stuff I need to achieve personally. And I'm still pretty much at the top. So like, why would I leave for now? Yeah. But one thing I want to do is like when my time is up or when I decide like it's not about me anymore, like I want to put all that effort into my son and I'm not trying to force him on a motorcycle. I, I do really want to ride bicycles with him because it's convenient and easy to do. And I played basketball growing up. So I want him to choose what he wants to do, but I just want him to ride bicycles with me here and there. So hopefully that <laughs> happens. He's already got, uh, he had a tricycle, he had a strider. I got him a bicycle. I, he's not quite riding the bicycle yet. And Anastasic for whenever that time comes. But it was really cool the other day because before I left to do the commentating for Endurocross, we were out in the backyard. He's riding a strider. And I was like, Papa Wheelie. And sure enough, two times in a row, he's not even, he's 20 months old right now. And he's not even talking yet, but he can understand us, obviously. But he, yeah, right. he popped like two big wheelies in a row and held it up at 12 o'clock. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so. Unfortunately, it looks like I might be well on my way of another trials web in the family. That was it. So trials, like you, you would start <clears throat> him on a trials bike, even if he said, dad, I want to ride hard enduro. Yeah, I think he needs to be on a trials bike and it's just so much easier. Like, and there's less pressures. I feel like if I put him in the motocross world, that's really not where I want him to be. And, and with trials, it's just such a, like a close community. Like I haven't been to a local event in ages. But I bet you anything I can go back to Northern California local events. Mostly all the same people there and they, they would be like I had never not been around. So I love the yeah. trials side of things, even though everyone makes fun of us for being like nerdy and, <laughs> and weird and wearing tight pants. It is what it is. But uh Christy Williams Richards calls us all woods weirdos. That's the I mean, that's <laughs> pretty the, good. Yeah, that's pretty apt. Um, I definitely want him on a trials bike. And, yeah. and an enduro bike too, whatever. We'll see what happens, but he needs to be on a trials bike too. What, what advice do you give people when they come and ask you about, you know, how do I ride like Cody Webb? You've probably done plenty of schools over the time. What, what are some of the things you're advising people? What are the most common tips? I'm not necessarily expecting you to go and sell people on trials as a discipline, but what are you telling enduro riders about how to level up? I think the most important thing is conservation of energy when you're racing. And that literally relates straightly to your technique. If you're riding the bike correctly, finding traction, using the clutch, your timing's good. Like you're just going to use way less effort on the bike. And you go to these hardener events and people are just pushing and pulling their bike up a hill. And if they had just learned some of those technical basic things on a trials bike, they can actually finish a race because they're not going to be beat tired from pushing instead of riding the bike now. Yeah. They're doing a very hard enduro while you're just doing a hard enduro. Yeah, exactly. They're making yeah. it harder on themselves. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Conserving energy comes to standing on your toes and yes. waiting the pegs, yep. knowing where your rear tire is. Like, yeah. It just, it all relates to trials and timing and obviously the moto side of things, but you just, you look at things different, differently if you're a trials rider. Yeah. The common, feedback i hear is that when say enduro riders have gone done some trials coaching they're looking at a series of obstacles and rocks 
in, in ahead of them or logs. And the degree of analysis that a trials writer would put into, okay, I'll double glip there and then I'll zap that and then I'll splatter that and then I'll follow that line. There's a lot more thought going into that. Whereas typically a lot of people that have only ridden enduro bikes just know my momentum is my friend. I've just got to keep momentum <laughs> without necessarily thinking through that sort of structured approach to each of those obstacles. Yeah, the uh, the enduro background I think is when in doubt, throttle out. <laughs> right. <laughs> With trials riders, you. I feel like whenever I do something, I already know how I'm going to do it before I even attempt it. And if I can't think of how I'm going to do it, I just won't try it because I know I won't make it. So, <laughs> yeah. That's my analytical approach. Yeah. I can, I feel like I can look at something in front of me and be like, okay, that's how I would do this. And I'm going to try it. And if I look at something and go, I don't, I, there's no, like, there's no way I'm going to ride it because I don't know how I'm going to do this. That's Whereas good. the enduro guys would just, they would just try it no matter what because they don't know the right technique or style how to go about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd like to wrap up our chat if that's okay with a few standard questions. What is, one of the things you wish you would have known before you started writing trials. That girls aren't interested in trials writers. Yep. No, fair call. <laughs> Said, what has been your biggest challenge and what did you learn from it? Oh, man. I think the biggest challenge was learning to believe in myself. And I think I had self-doubt there a couple of years in 2007, 2008. During the run was, of seconds. Yeah, during the run of seconds, which is why my name is Cody Webb too now. Is that where it came from? No, it's kind of... But you're just having a fun with it. Yeah, just have. I just say, I just claim it because I get second a lot. So I've won a lot there too, so to be fair. Yeah. But I came through just adversity and believed in myself. And it was just like, once I won that championship in 2010, and that was a really strong year for me. I just felt like I was unstoppable. Yep, yep. Yeah, walking on water was uh, the way Dougie Lampkin refers to it. Yeah. Uh, what, tell me, what advice would you give to someone who was thinking of starting trials? Uh, you just It's really hard to do, but you have to just find that group of local guys that go to local events and start talking to them. And if you've got a trials bike and just ride by yourself, you're not. there's not really much gain there. And trials is just such an easy way to ride in small groups. And when I got riding with the enduro guys, I'm we're in the same area. There are four levels below me, but we can still ride and have fun doing our own lines. So you just got to find that group of local guys and yep. start riding with them. Yeah, I'm fortunate to be part of a club and we obviously get a lot of people that are coming from an enduro background to trials to partake in the sport, help improve their enduro riding. And the biggest difference we keep hearing is as soon as they start entering competitions because they're immersed in those local comps, they're riding with people, they're riding sections that they're not choosing that someone else has decided you have to ride around and over. It's forcing them to improve their skill set. So it's that targeted practice as well from those local comps and those local groups that I think is, is some of the my observations, at least from watching some of the enduro guys come to trials. What have been some of the people that have helped you along the way that you're really helped you level up and you've been a big contributor to your overall success? Yeah, I'd say definitely my dad. Kip Webb, trials rider, and grew up riding with him every weekend, even though we butt heads plenty of times and hated each other and wouldn't talk to each other after a national for a week or two sometimes because I messed up. We got through it. And obviously, my dad and then Jeff Aaron took me under his wing. I traveled with him, 10, 11, 12 years old, learned stuff I probably shouldn't have, but for my own good. And then Brad Balmer was a big part of my trials career and Ryan Young, but Brad kind of 
took a lot of the kids under his wing and maybe did too much for us, but uh, maybe we weren't grateful enough at the time, but definitely looking back at it, like he was another father figure towards us and he definitely yeah. kept me uh, from making bad decisions. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And You're then- not the first guest to say that about Brad and that definitely. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me from speaking to the US cohort of trials riders is this pay it forward attitude that exists yes. amongst you all and where you're there's so much investment in building up that next generation and now we see people like carl davis coming to help with the sort of team camp and things like that it's really there's a great culture as an outsider looking in yeah no it definitely is he's not as involved anymore but he's still going to events and i know nigel parker's i think staying at his place for a while was winter so he's definitely a good guy and then you know i switched to beta and it was my first look into actually training and racing and stuff for Endurocross. So it was actually a flat tracker. I was working at Beta at the time, Johnny Murphy. He helped me a lot and kind of actually got me training and figuring stuff out like that. And he's a small guy, never, no one would really ever heard of or know. And maybe some people know his name, but he helped me out a ton. And then obviously got my opportunity with Beta to get in the Enduro world side of things. And then I uh, switched to KTM. My team ma- manager there was definitely uh, strict. He had a, he was very good at his job. We'll put it that way. Auntie Kalanen, he definitely pushed me to on certain nights to levels I didn't think I could and do, not just on the mental yeah. side of things. So that was huge. And now I think definitely my mechanic, he was actually my mechanic the very first time I went to Erzberg as factory KTM and got second. He was working for KTM then. His name's Cody also, <laughs> Cody Richelderfer. We call him Cody One. But uh, he was my first mechanic on the factory team, essentially. Okay. KTM employee. So I worked with him for not that long. And then he went to work for Caleb Russell. And then I got another guy named Robbie, who was a great guy. And we had a couple of good years as well. But when I was switching to the Sherco team away from KTM, I was like, need someone I trust and a guy who would be willing to do this job as a mechanic. And he's definitely a quiet guy, but without him, I'd be so in over my head right now on the Sherco team. So yeah, we were able to steal him away from KTM, which was awesome. And pretty much talked to him about more or less every day. And some of it's like absolutely worthless stuff on a bike <laughs> that we like just weird ideas we have because he should have been an engineer like me, but he yep. became a mechanic. But he's like way smarter than I am. He's without him. I don't think I'd have the success I had with the, the change of the team, the team bringing him on board and us being working so close directly together. It really helped make the package work out for us it brings up another point you had some success on on the ktm and obviously you've switched now to to sherco what's been the what's been your biggest uh surprise in the change and are you the kind of guy that can ride well on just about anything or do you need your bike to be set precisely and did it take a lot of time to get the sherco right for you i feel like i can ride pretty much anything i just gotta get my bars set up good and like lower foot pegs but if I get my okay. bars and levers in a decent position, I can normally get along with any bike. So transition really wasn't that bad. We keep changing things here and there. It's just so tricky because I feel like we have way more races now than what I did when I was at Factory KTM. So we have the AMA yeah, Hard Enduro Championships. When I was at KTM, that's a professional program that's been around for a long time. Like Sherco, we're still building and figuring out how we're doing it. So I have a lot more say and involvement with things now but at ktm the logistics were like you're flying down here 
give me like sometime in this two week range, we're going to do testing. So everything was like so set up logistically, but it was just so much pressure and some stuff happened in Super Enduro. I was just, I wasn't allowed to go to Europe and ride. There's just a lot of stuff where I was like, I'm over the control yeah. aspect of things. And at Sherco, it's almost, yeah, just do as you please. Like, we'll support you, whatever you do. It's a, such a different attitude. And both of them have their pros and cons. But right now, the I'm definitely feeling like very relaxed and, and happy about it. But there's other times where I'm like, maybe I need a little bit more structure with some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And finally, what is one of the myths about trials that you think we should debunk? Maybe that we're all woods weirdos, perhaps. Well, we, statistically speaking. Yeah. <laughs> Apple does not fall far. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Um, I don't know. Just trials is so, it doesn't get the respect it deserves. And the amount of skill and talent it takes is, I don't know, nothing in the motorsport world really compares, I think. So, I don't know. Trials is just, it's way harder than it looks and it doesn't get the res- uh, respect yeah. it deserves. Yeah. Cool. I don't really know any myths, though. I can't. That's fine. Cody, it's been an absolute treat to have you on the Trials Australia podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving us so much of your time. I really appreciate it and taking us on your journey, Trials to Enduro to now what's exciting you with the Stasis <laughs> and your son's 12 o'clock wheelies. It's been great. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm definitely uh, really cool to be on here and kind of talk about the history of my Trials career. It's still Hasn't fully ended yet. Event-wise, it has, but I'm still out there playing around. So I would love to see you uh, at a US national and look forward to seeing how you, uh, if you can manage to get out on another (laughs) event, that'd be great. And good luck for the recovery from your your injury and whatever the rest of the season holds for you. I I wish you the absolute best. Thank you so much, Cody. Yeah, really appreciate that. Cheers. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Trials Australia podcast. This episode was brought to you by Vertigo. Experience and passion define the basis of the Vertigo brand. Vertigo grew from an idea creating a bike to match the passion that existed within the team. Despite being the youngest of the Trials brands, they have now had years of consistent year-on-year growth and have proven themselves at the dizzying heights of Trial GP, at the harsh conditions of the Scottish Six Day, and there is also a strong groundswell of representation around the globe amongst your everyday club riders. Vertigo set themselves apart by having the most technically advanced bike as well as the most customizable. Vertigo have made a significant announcement with the launch of their new Nitro model. Every few years, Vertigo do these updates and the Nitro is a significant update for 2022. Here is a new frame, new silencer design, new fuel tank, water pump, bash plate, rear brake system and a redistribution of the electrical components. They'll be available around late November and early December and prices will be $11,350 Australian dollars for the 200, 250 and 300cc capacities. Please visit vertigoracing.com.au for all the details of the new model. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Links and show notes can be found at trials.com.au. There you'll find how to connect with us on all the various platforms. If you want to get in touch, you can also send us an email via podcast at trials.com.au. And if you like this show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts.